0: And uh, over 25 years, as you can imagine, we've gone through a lot of different programs and processes in order to make workers feel empowered. So we've attempted an ESOP, and we'll talk about that, I guess, a little bit later. And now we're doing really what is called a profit sharing program predicated on a contract. And the contract uh, that we write is really around accountability, and responsibility, and because we're production people, we make things for a living, we call it swear. And so swear is something that we take an oath to, management and employee sign, and it's really around what we've got to bring to the table for our business in terms of safety, waste, efficiency, attendance, and returns, which is quality. And if we swear to go do our level best, to meet our customers' expectations. We actually have provided less than college graduate employees on average $50,000 jobs Mm -hmm. for the last 25 years.
1: Thank you for that overview. Um, So next, Steve. Um, Another model, worker co-op. You ran and built the largest in the country. Um, So tell us about what what, how that works, and um, and you know, so what you've learned about creating good jobs through that model.
2: Sure. So, hello everybody, thanks for braving the weather. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I represent here a couple of organizations, but particularly a Cooperative Home Care Associates, which is a worker-owned company based in the Bronx, started as a welfare to work program about 27 years ago. Uh, it is, provides home health care services um, to low-income people in the Bronx and in Manhattan. started with 12 home care workers uh, and now employ 2,300. Uh, we have our own, it's mostly a Latina and African American uh, female workforce. Uh, these are the home health aides who, you know, if you have a loved one who's ill or living at home, rather than going in a nursing home, someone comes in, uh, helps with bathing and feeding and uh, support for that, for your loved one. Um, this is a typically described as a, a, a certainly as a low-wage job, but it's a very high-skilled job. It requires enormous amounts of skills to be able to care well for an elderly person or a person with physical disabilities. Uh, there are very few training requirements for this type of worker. It's federally, it's only 75 hours of training. Um, and so when we built the company, we wanted to make it a very employee-centered organization. That's why we designed it as a worker-owned company to begin with. We created our own uh, employer-based training program, so now we train 600 uh, women a year, guarantee them employment if they graduate from the, from the training program. We double the number of hours required. And, um, and so our outcomes in terms of from a workforce development perspective is very, very high. We have uh, the typical turnover in the industry of home care is around 50% annually. Ours is below 20% all the time. We have an um, excellent um, graduation and placement because we're, we're training for ourselves. Uh, worker, a worker-owned company, uh, worker cooperative rather, it's just really quickly, is simply a, a for-profit business where the employees are the owners of the business. Uh, it's typically structured as a democratic governance so that the employees have one share, one vote. Uh, they have the right to elect their board of directors, and also share in the dividend, so that's the, that's the basic uh, design of a worker cooperative. These models are not necessarily um, incompatible. Uh, cooperative Home Care is also a B Corporation, as is its um, sister cooperative in Philadelphia, Home Care Associates, uh, in fact, B Corps named um, 18 of the best for the world, of all their 600 plus members and both Cooperative Home Care Associates and Home Care Associates in Philadelphia were among those top 18. So we are, we are proudly part of that movement as well. And it, uh, it's a nice way to underscore that we're not the only ones who say we're great. They, um, <laughs> <laughs> they come in and do a, do a very serious audit, uh, social audit and, and, and organizational audit of, of workplace and environmental community outcomes. and uh, and the fact that we are designed to to around both our workers and our consumers um, uh, is is why I think we scored so high. The only final thing I'll say is I hope we will soon talk about the fact that worker cooperatives are seen by um, many in the philanthropic and public world as as perhaps a way to uh, generate uh, economic development, community development in in low-income communities. That's certainly where we started. Uh, We've, um, there's probably, however, only about 300 worker cooperatives in the country right now, so it's still a very small movement, growing, but but relatively small. And since it's relatively small, um, and since the problem is so large of (laughs) unemployment, and the resources are so precious, uh, we've always focused on trying to make sure that we are not simply trying to build a good company, although that's really important. And the fact that we've been able to, similarly to what Albert was saying, provide a degree of stability uh, for low-income women, for thousands of low-income women now, in a, in a company, in, in a community that's very unstable, that we're very, very proud of. But 2,300 workers, even in the Bronx, is not a very big number. So any strategy that invests in worker ownership or some type of capital uh, democratization needs to not stop with just the enterprise, but, re- but also figure out how to leverage what we learn yeah. within that enterprise to, to impact and influence the larger industry. So much of what my organization mm-hmm. does, which is PHI, <coughs> which is a nonprofit associated with proper home care, we uh, are the development arm of that cooperative, but we then take the learnings from that cooperative and work with many, many other conventionally o- owned businesses and nonprofits uh, to take the practices that we've learned and improve them in other agencies, but also since this industry is so regulated by the public, so many public dollars go into these businesses, um, we have a great deal of work in the public policy arena to improve uh, regulations and reimbursement policies to improve the quality of jobs for the whole sector, not just a single enterprise. So all oh, will
1: come in there, so we getting ahead of us. <laughs> um, but thank you. And Camille um, keeps of all kinds of employee ownership. (laughs) So please situate us and tell us where we are in terms of employee stock ownership programs or um, sort of the other things you watch. A lot of them now, not very many. Where are we?
3: Um, So I'm with the National Center for Employee Ownership. I'm the research director there. And we do, um, there's there's people who can talk about this topic a lot better than me. Norman Curlin, for example, (laughs) is in the room and he's been working on these issues for a very long time. but we work on all forms of employee ownership, including cooperatives and uh, different types of synthetic equity. And, but we primarily focus on ESOPs. It's an Employee Stock Ownership Plan. And it's the most common form of employee ownership, broad-based employee ownership in the country. And when I'm saying broad-based, I mean it doesn't just apply to management or executives or a few people at the top. It impli- applies to most or all of the employees in the company. There's currently around 10,000 ESOPs or ESOP-like plans in the United States covering around 13 million employees. So um, while cooperatives have governance structures that make them a very deep impact, ESOPs can work in more traditional companies and are a little bit more scalable at least in the US and have been able to be a a larger part of the, the US economy. And while I think the idea of employee ownership is really intuitive, like we all think, oh yeah, Employees should own the business. They should be part of the, the financial participation, the wealth of their firm. The idea of an ESOP can be, in particular, this one vehicle for employee ownership can be a little bit confusing. So I kind of want to give you a background. I think the history of employee ownership and ESOPs particularly helps, helps clarify what this form of employee ownership is. And um, the first one started in 1956 with Peninsula Newspapers. A man named Louis Kelso um, invented the Esop, and what he thought, his, his idea was that ownership now, capitalism has an issue, and it, it concentrates ownership. It's, a, it's you know, a concept that we're all familiar with, that capitalism has this problem. And his solution was that we need broader ownership. We need more capitalists. We need more people who are participating in, in capital ownership in this nation. So what his solution was, there was, this, there was this newspaper and the owner wanted to sell to employees. And, but employees don't have millions of dollars to buy out a company, uh, especially in certain industries. It's very difficult to raise the capital. Um, banks often won't give individual employees the capital to buy a company out. So he created this structure by which the company could create a trust. And the trust could buy all the shares, which would be held on behalf of employees, and pay back the loan with pre-tax company profits and they used actually a profit sharing plan that was all that was in place at the time. There were no ESOPs at the federal level at the time so he used a profit sharing plan to build this trust and get a loan on behalf of this trust which held the shares for employees and then as the company continued to succeed, continued to be profitable, they could pay it back and eventually employees would own the entire company without having to put in a dime of their own money. So that's how this idea started. Is with him. He was a boot- he had a boutique law firm, and he would set them up around the country. But he had a friend, Russell Long, who was a senator, and he was uh, in the financial um, the finance committee of the Senate, and he was known for his incredible knowledge of ec- expertise in tax law, which we're all striving to understand. So, <laughs> so he was at the time passing um, the. Employee Retirement Income and Security Act. Because before ERISA, which is, it's called before ERISA happened, uh, it, companies would promise all these retirement benefits and then at the last minute just take them away. And there was no federal regulation for stopping them from doing that. So it was really important to have something that said, if you're going to promise all these, you don't have to give retirement benefits, but if you're going to promise all these benefits, you have to make sure you give them to employees. So Russell Long, um, Kelso got the ear of Russell Long. And they created this, this structure that Kelso had come up with and, impl- and, and integrated into ERISA as another um, defined contribution retirement plan. So there's no necessary reason why employee ownership has to be a retirement plan, but historically, that's how it happened. So that's why employee ownership that's why we often liken an employee-owned company to a four, it's like a 401k plan, but it's employer stock, is because it got put through in that plan. But but the larger issue is that it's financial participation for employees. Helping them create, uh, participate in the wealth that they're helping to create on a day-to-day basis with their labor. So that's kind of where we are now, ESOPs, um, because Kelso and Russell Long were able to do that, we have the most widely spread employee ownership in the U.S. than in any other country. And, um, I mean, there are countries that uh, John Lewis Partnership in the UK you might be familiar with or Mondragon in Spain where they have cooperative or democratic models that have been very large but those haven't scaled here. ESOPs have have been the primary vehicle for employee ownership in the US. So, that's kind of the employee ownership landscape, if you will. (laughs) Great.
1: Um, Wow, so I feel like we had some history lessons (laughs) and um, we also learned a lot about what's great about um, all of these models when they're successful. But it's not easy to make work, as I'm sure you all know. Um, So um, I I guess I'd I'd like to go to Jamie and ask about sort of um, in in spreading the B Corp model. um, What what challenges have you come up against in trying to sort of tell other people about it, um, or
4: I mean the amazing thing is how quickly it's spread. Mm -hmm. There are now 19 states that have adopted benefit corporation legislation um, allowing corporations to register that way including in July uh, the governor of Delaware signed into law. The benefit corporation legislation. And actually, when, when I got to make my big speech on the floor about it, I, I said, we're going to be the Delaware of benefit corporations. <laughs> we're going to attract <laughs> all the progressive companies. And now Delaware is trying to be the Delaware of <laughs> benefit <laughs> corporations. Um, but, um, you know, the, the um, uh, I, I think that, that there is, you know, a pervasive sense that something, that, you know, after the crash in 2008, that something had gone deeply wrong with the structure of the, the mega corporate economy, the too big to fail economy, and there've got to be ways to seed alternative efforts uh, that give working people more of a stake and uh, small business a chance um, in the economy. So I think that that's very much out there. Um, you know, the risk for us is that um, that it it's assimilated and adopted so rapidly that it ends up not really meaning much. You know, um, but built into the benefit corporation laws are the requirement of uh, filing reports that explain that you are adhering to the highest levels of environmental and workplace and social accountability and standards, uh, you know, in terms of hiring and in terms of the environmental practices of the group. Um, and um, the, the public is becoming kind of a watchdog. Um, in terms of the activities of benefit corporations. So we don't want people saying they're benefit corporation and not living up to it. I think that that's uh, a big challenge there. But I, I like very much the, the idea that the benefit corporations are merging with these other models to develop a kind of counterculture within contemporary capitalism, that there's, there's another way to go that's not just the big Wall Street companies.
1: Um, and so Al, you've run your company for 25 years mm-hmm. and um, I imagine it's evolved a lot over that time. Like, What have you found that like, didn't work, you had a ditch, and, or things that you're testing out in terms of your model?
0: Well over the quarter of 25 years obviously every day is a, is a discovery of something new. So, so to give you an idea of trying to be a social entrepreneur, I like that word, I don't know where it came from, <laughs> but I do like it, trying to be a social entrepreneur. I, uh, I'm going to take you on a journey. And I'm going to take you on a journey. It's going to take me maybe two minutes to take you on this journey. <laughs> and, uh, and through this journey, if you really feel bad for me, just say all, oh,
4: okay? So, oh.
0: so we had an incredibly good 2007. We were in, in, in one of our plants. We were in ESOP. We made a lot of money. We had about $150 million in, in revenue. Uh, and all of our employees were doing very very well on their square incentive on their square incentive program and but we only we had about one hundred and fifty employees, and I had a dream that that number should be five hundred and I had a way of doing it. I had always done our business at that time with large multinational paper companies who were uh, who were headquartered in the United States, and during that during that time, I felt as though there was a new technology in Europe and Asia that had using recycled paper versus using tree-based paper that the United States companies, for their own reasons, didn't want to adopt, probably because they owned the trees, right? So they own the trees. So <laughs> so uh, so I made this decision in 2000 and. 7, 2008, to change the industry. Well, went in and figured out in order to change the industry, it was going to cost about $20 million to change the industry. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: and I was having a
0: difficult time, even though we were making money, getting financing, and I didn't know why in late 2007, but I found out in 2008. So I decided to do it with high-cost debt and my own money. <laughs> well, I put in ten million, and the high cost debt put in ten million, and we bought this wonderful German machine, and oh. we bought. <laughs> <laughs> and we we, we 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 took a ride. Well, fast forward, uh, the whole situation collapsed in two thousand and nine. The debt we had, uh, the financing we had dried up, the industry didn't change and I had to bankrupt the company and take a wildly profitable business and put 150 employees on the street. Oh. Now that's worth a big ol' right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously it was a personal failure. I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of people left me, up to it including my wife. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. I you I like uh, <laughs> So, so so, fast forward, <laughs> rebuilding, new model, figuring out a different way. So now we're running companies. We're getting on our feet. And I get a call from a former business partner, big company in Atlanta, who's looking for minority employees. And they said, well, hey, we know you had this business in New Jersey, and can you, any, any of those employees need a job? So what we did was we went back and we canvassed trying to get and redirect all of the people that I felt like I had failed. And we came to find out that 90% were working, making more money than they were making when they were making with me. And so, well that should have been a real big beret. And so so the issue is in failure of of really making a bad business decision, making a bad bet and losing. What I really wanted to do, which was permanently change lives, seems to have happened because those folks are doing perfectly well without me. So if the cost of that is $10 million, then I'm willing to pay that cost. Huh. Wow, okay. <laughs> that's not what I was <laughs> <laughs> a journey. So awesome. all, right. Um, all right, so challenges
1: to the business model. Um, so, so, Steve, though, I think you started to talk a little bit about. Um, Worker co-ops have been around for a long time, right? <laughs> but um, there's only three or three hundred to five hundred of them. We probably, probably don't even know how many exactly. Right. Um, why is it such a small? Uh, why hasn't this model scaled if it has so many benefits? What are the obstacles there?
2: Well, I think, uh, and Albert's story is is indicative of this. Uh, I think that many people, particularly in the in the workforce development world. Um, Believe and rightfully so that it's, it's quite easy to start a small business. Um, it turns out it's extremely hard to keep it running and and running profitably. So there's just a it, in the small business general uh, economy, you hear different statistics, but generally four out of five fail within the first five years. So um, if you have a, a public backing or philanthropic backing, you know. Th- there is an expectation that you know, it shouldn't be too hard to run, uh, create a business and we'll just make it a cooperative and everything will be, it'll be a better business because it's a cooperative. And that's just not, uh, there's just too much instability, there's too much risk to really have that as a, as a strategy of trying to, if, you're, if your challenge is to improve the quality of jobs for low income people at some degree of scale, mm-hmm. uh, it's not going to happen. Business by business by business by business. So, um, so I think that there's been a recognition in the in the, in the community development world, uh, cooperative development world, that, uh, that that worker ownership is an incredibly important um, strategy. Uh, where you can, if you can establish it and establish a business that is stable and strong, then the <laughs> worker ownership can really reinforce all that you're trying to do because you're organized around the employee there's a number of different practices that you can undertake um, whether it's improving the quality of supervision that really is a t- attended to how you supervise well a low-wage workforce you can have a peer mentor programs you can link uh, you can have a program within the company for emergency loans you can have a, a capacity within the organization to link people to public benefits and particularly to uh, earn income tax credit benefits there's a l- number of different things that an employer can do to help take an unstable job and make it a stable job, and the worker ownership structure reinforces that. Um, so if you if you're have all the other elements of a successful business, mm-hmm. then you can make an even better business from the perspective of the employee. It's the fact that it's just not so easy to create a business to begin with, or to keep it, to keep it running. Um, and, in, and in our industry as well, uh, there's only so much Y- any business can do given the constraints of public funding and public policy so we felt at, in the Bronx that we were doing a very good job relatively to everybody else in terms of creating um, a, a, a stable employment for for an unstable community but that we had to but we, we couldn't do any better with the current rules so we had to change the rules of the game and therefore that's where we chose very specifically to stop trying to replicate cooperative businesses, take what we've developed in Philadelphia and New York, deepen that, so now we're quite sizable as companies, but, but leverage that by investing in public policy change and advocacy change, so we've done a lot of work to, um, to uh, improve reimbursements, to improve training standards and public policy. Just uh, at the federal level, just three weeks ago, um, after a five-year struggle, um, we've been working daily with the department, U.S. Department of Labor to change the fact that you may not know this, but home care workers in the United States are not protected by minimum wage and overtime protection. They're carved out as an exception, as, as what they call a babysitter, exemption as if these jobs were only uh, to require the skills of a babysitter. So we worked very hard to change the Department of Labor's regulations of Fair Labor Standards Act to to include... Home care workers. And finally, uh, after a five year struggle, uh, the Department of Labor announced the final rule change three weeks ago, and that impacts too <laughs> many. And I hasten to add, we're not, you know, <laughs> PHI was very much in the lead of that, but uh, very many other organizations, National Employment Law Project, SEIU, <laughs> union, many, many other folks were in this battle together but um, you don't get too many national victories of late. And so <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll take it and, and, that is, and that impacts two million workers. And, and I think that what, what the story of that is, although it's a, it's a many years story, um, is that uh, by being inside the industry, by being an actor inside the industry, we have enormous knowledge, enormous credibility of relationships that allowed us to become an actor the se- within the sector and within the industry, so that's the type of leverage that is absolutely, I think, necessary. If this is a strategy that's supported by public and philanthropic dollars, that's <coughs> enterprise development alone um, is insufficient given what we know to be the scale of the problem. Uh,
1: um, so, Camille, ESOPs also have had their struggles. Um, what what are the beefs that you usually hear with? that model and um,
3: how do you answer them and... Um, well, one of the main things I think is a misconception is that if you put in employee ownership or if you give people stock or, if, you know, if you create this plan, that that magically changes the entire company and that that's, it's not true. Creating employee ownership, ownership itself, having a stake in the financial success of the company is only one, it's an important, but one element of of an ownership culture, which is what you need to have a successful company that, that grows and is profitable. And I think that in the examples that we've seen that are difficult, and there's some very high profile examples of United Airlines, for example, or um, the Chicago Tribune. It's what a lot of people in the United States associate with the employee stock ownership plan and there's a negative perception because of that, because both of those companies went into bankruptcy after having an employee stock ownership plan. It was not because of the employee stock ownership plan, it was because those companies were headed for bankruptcy and they didn't fully, and and employee ownership can be a tool to improve performance, to get a company back on its feet. It can't resurrect a company that's one, not committed to employee ownership or creating an ownership culture and it's, it can't resurrect a company that wasn't going to be resurrected either so those are I mean it was newspaper industry and airlines you know those are very difficult industries to be successful in in these days so there's a lot of negative perception there but what's important is that when you do engage employees when you do create an employee ownership culture along with having a real financially meaningful ownership stake you create better companies and better jobs and the statistics are overwhelming it's for employees it's 2.5 times the retirement assets and so think about that in terms of a four hundred thousand I mean these are going to vary depending on who your workforce is but four hundred thousand versus a million dollars when you retire after however many years that's a that's a significant difference um, because often ESOPs are on top of a diversified plan or a pension plan or some other type of plan it's also uh, higher compensation, five to twelve percent higher overall compensation at employee-owned companies. And they're four times less likely to be laid off. And for the companies, it's a very compelling way to drive performance. They're 25% less likely to close. Over the the first year that the ESOP is implemented, if they if they develop this culture, it's four it's between two to five percent higher productivity, sales. The return on that investment is really high. So employee ownership can be a great driver to, uh, to help employees at all levels increase their wealth. And one story, I don't know if you guys have seen, there's a 50-minute uh, documentary on employee ownership called We the Owners, um, Employees Expanding the American Dream. And one of the stories that gets me teary-eyed pretty much every time I watch it is this guy, and he's a forklift driver. And he talks about this time, and he's, he's never, he, ne- he didn't go to college, he had very limited education, he hasn't gone beyond forklift driving at New Belgium Brewing, an employee-owned company out of Fort Collins, which also happens to be um, a B Corp. And he says, I, he, he talks about this time when he went to go and buy a house, it's, you know, assets, something that so many people never get to do anymore. Buying a house is such a difficult thing to do. And he went and did it without, um, a broker, without a real estate broker. And because of the financial participation that he learned, the open book management, what it meant to be at new an owner at New Belgium Brewing, he was able to do that transaction by himself. A $500,000 transaction where he bought a house. And he would have never one been able to purchase that house or two been able to understand those really difficult concepts and he said you know on the other side of the table for me was a bunch of suits and they were like who is that guy and why can he sign these papers on his own why can he do that you know and its it's such a compelling story because its it, it talks to all the different aspects of where our society is failing people you know it's like not only does he have a job where he makes a wage, not only is he building assets, but he's able to do it and feel like he can control these things because he has the training and financial knowledge to be in control of his, of his financial world. So I think that um, while there's a lot of bad press around ESOPs, and they're, I mean, the bottom line is they're a tool, they're, they're a mechanism for sharing employee ownership broadly, and they're a very successful mechanism for sharing employee ownership broadly. But like any mechanism, it can be abused. There's huge tax benefits that come with employee ownership. You can abuse those. There are, there are federal laws that, that try to catch you, but I mean, you know, the government's closed down, so they might not <laughs> in the next however long. So there's, I mean, and there's, and there's people who do it for the wrong reasons. There's going to be all of these things that, that make ESOPs look bad in certain lights, but it's a tool for sharing ownership. Mm-hmm. And in no other country do you have this accessible level of a tool to be like, oh, if I want to sell my company, if I want to leave this company intact with the people who helped me build it, I have this preset format to do that. And that's what an ESOP is. So, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult because I do absolutely agree that there are problems with how it's being implemented. There's a lot of employee-owned companies we never see or touch and we don't know what they're doing. but. We think this tool is very important and that it's been very successful.
1: Interesting. It's a really compelling story. Um, So, this is slightly tangential before we sort of wrap up. I kind of, uh, something that's in the back of my mind right now is how um, worker ownership and sort of, as we're talking about building good jobs and worker empowerment, um, how does it relate to sort of the labor movement and unions? I mean, because that is also a way of trying to um, build labor power and create. some a degree of control over your workplace. Um, are these just industries where unions have failed, or is this, are, are worker ownership models more important because the labor movement is sort of in in retreat? Um, does anyone have any thoughts on that? If not,
5: it's okay.
2: So, so um, it is the labor movement is very important uh, in terms of the low wage workforce, and um, corporate home care. So we figured that. Having a 2,000 worker employee-owned company wasn't complex enough, so we are unionized as well. So, <laughs> oh. um, so in New York, um, the SCIU, uh, which is the largest healthcare union in the country and one of the more powerful ones, is very, it has a great deal of saturation within New York City, particularly. They organize much of the home care industry, much of the, uh, almost all the hospitals and nursing homes. So, they're an enormously politically powerful entity. And we had always worked with them on public policy issues, um, basically fighting on the same side. They hadn't organized our part of the industry up until about seven or eight years ago. Um, but when they did, we welcomed them with management neutrality and, um, and we've been organized for about seven years or so. So um, uh, they have been very, very supportive overall of, of our work both as an as a employee-centered company but also in our proper policy work. There's a number of unions that are beginning to toy, basically, or beginning to explore um, worker ownership as a strategy The the uh, steel workers have in the past and are, are revisiting um, that strategy. Um, SEIU is looking at it more broadly. So it, it is big. I think the labor movement is definitely trying to reconsider all different options of how they can still drive um, uh, support for their members and this is one area that they're looking at. So are at. your workers both the
4: employers <laughs> and the employees? The, I yeah. mean, are they their management and their workers? Well, I mean, it's, it's not they <laughs> they <laughs> I told you it wasn't simple. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so they are owners
2: and they are, and they are workers and employees. So they, it's a, it's a conventional for-profit corporation in the sense that we have a board of directors that hires and fires management, directs management, it's just that the corporate board is elected by the workers. Uh-huh. And, um, and they, uh, the majority of our corporate board, which is about a $60 million company, is our home health
4: So they can go out on strike against themselves, basically. Yeah. They could, well, and there's,
2: you know, it's, uh, there, there have been stories of that, mm-hmm. not in our case, but uh, mm-hmm. in, in the labor movement in the past, where there have been, um, be in part because of the complexity of the employee stock ownership plan, and that there's a trust mechanism that sort mm-hmm. of, often sits between the workers and the company, there have been cases where literally workers have gone out and struck against against the ESOP.
3: It's actually, it's a pretty difficult, it's a complicated issue when it comes to employee stock ownership plans because there are wonderful cases of em- owned companies and unions working together buying out the company together working together to buy Marlin mold I, I think is an example of the workers and the the union and the management of the company coming together to be like we're going to close our doors if we don't do something let's buy the company and let's make this work together there's also a number of examples of unionized esops uh, homeland uh, grocery is a large example there's also a lot of grocery stores that don't Um, that uh, say the ESOP is in place of needing a union because employees are um, actually owners. so there's there's talk on either side of that debate um, and it's it's a complicated issue where they do work together it's incredibly powerful um, but there are companies that empower workers that give them such good benefits um, at ESOPs that what they've what they've got at those companies you know is probably better than than many uh, many um, union benefits or many negotiated benefits. So, I mean, it, it's a full however long this discussion mm-hmm. is and probably longer <laughs> talk about that relationship. But certainly, they both have their place and they can work together. So, um, that's that's where we end up on ESOPs and, and labor unions.
4: Got it. <laughs> Could I just add something to this? Mm-hmm because I mean um, it's a fascinating question that you guys are talking about here and it's important because the labor movement is obviously <clears throat> up against the ropes um, and, and there's a decision, uh, a case before the Supreme Court this term which really is a dagger pointed at the heart of the labor movement called the Mallhall case which um, basically would allow, would, would forbid neutrality, neutrality uh, agreements as an improper bribe or gratuity to the um, to the union and so um, so the labor movement obviously needs to be in a mode of thinking of creative ways to deal with the assault on organizing rights um, and the nlra rights in the courts and so this might be one i never thought you know until you started talking camille about uh esops as being kind of a form of material concession to the workers that you could the, you know, Section Seven of the Wagner Act gives people the right to engage in concerted action—not just to organize a union, but you could you could have a, a strike for ESOP rights. You could organize to to push something like that too.
1: So, last question before we get to your guys' questions, because I thought I got a better one. Me. Um, so, uh, Steve talked about how it's like some of the. Public policy tools that help um, worker-owned cooperatives or other forms of worker ownership companies um, are just co- are just public policy tools that wouldn't help any company, right? It's like you need to have a successful business before you can have a successful co-op. Um, but are there are there things that could change to ease the way forward for these models, state, national, federally, um, or? Or approaches that are could be more or less helpful from the sort of philanthropic nonprofit community. And have we seen good stuff from that community? Um, and could they be helping more? <coughs> Twitter wants to want of want
3: that
2: <laughs> I can start. Sure. Um, well, I, when we started um, doing corporate development about thirty-five years ago, there was very little. Experience in the United States. I mean, there used to be, you know, people used to point back to the um, Knights of Labor in the 19th century or something as the last time there was a real cooperative, worker cooperative movement in the country. So we had very few people to learn from, quite frankly. We were really stumbling on our own. Um, That's not true anymore. You know, there's now 35 years of experience. There's not a whole lot of worker owned companies, but there are 300. There are several that are very successful, very stable, very profitable, very employee oriented so you know it, it what i what i see happening is a resurgence of resurgence of interest in the worker cooperative form which is great I mean, we really want to encourage um, but it's it's bad enough to reinvent the wheel Instead, people are reinventing the flat tire. You know, they're just going in there and <laughs> doing the same stuff, <laughs> the same mistakes that we made 30 years ago. And you just don't have to do that because now there are resources. There are. There's a US Federation for Worker Cooperatives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a, the, 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 basically the trade association of worker owned companies. There's the ICA group, which for years has provided technical assistance to worker owned companies. Uh, Hilary Abell is just about to publish um, a paper. She used to work for wages, which Camille is on the board of which is a cooperative network in California uh, that's done sort of lessons learned of worker cooperative development that will be published by the um, Democracy Collaborative in the next couple of weeks. So there's just a lot of information and and knowledge now available to people, and I'm not sure that the field is taking good advantage of that. So it's uh, it's a shame if there are resources going in to initiatives without taking benefit of the fact that there's now, People who actually have been through it a couple of times and know, and know what they're doing. I think in terms of public policy, it's it's always um, e- everyone is always looking for uh, uh, ways in which to answer the fundamental problem of least low income cooperative development, which is a lack of capital, lack of equity. Particularly, there's several sources of debt capital mm-hmm. um, that is good, but doesn't replace equity, and, and so there's been just a constant search. In fact, the, the Colors restaurant in, uh, in um, New York City, which was created by the r- workers who were, um, survived the attack on the windows of the world during September 11th, they formed a worker cooperative restaurant, um, and they had lots of different debt sources. They had to go to their, their friends in Italy to get from the Italian cooperative movement to get an equity investment in the cooperative. So there's just no source of thoughtful venture capital for the worker ownership model. And so there's often efforts to create public sources of that and usually it all ends up either going nowhere or ending up being another form of debt which is nice but not the same. So there's this fundamental question of how do you uh, scrape together some real risk capital as as was successfully done in as terms of the model for the community development finance corporations in this country, there's a, there's a significant you know, billion dollar program basically that's put equity dollars into the community development system, and that's what we would need.
0: Most low wage workers are in C or S corporations, or traditional corporations. And if, in order to move low wage workers up The latter, in corporations, it has to be in the corporation's interest. It's got to make the corporation's bottom line more successful. And I think the one public policy that would really help is an incentive for training. Right now, the way training is held in most companies, it has to be expensed immediately when done. And that expense and immediately when done is hard to budget against versus when you go buy a machine, you can treat it a totally different way. So you see CapEx being 9X for every X of training. And so there are some states, uh, we're we're in Louisiana, and Louisiana has a specific training incentive state, small, that targets manufacturing or oil and gas Mm -hmm. that allows for us to go do that and recoup some of those efforts (coughs) And in Detroit, we have nothing, so we do less, so we do less, right? <laughs> so, so the fact of the matter is, I think training and trust takes workers up a ladder, right? And once they know what they're doing and they do it over time, you trust that they can do it, and then you give them more because they're giving you more. And right now, the way we deal with training in this com- country could be helped with policy.
1: All right. Okay. <laughs> So you guys have been saving up your questions. <laughs> Ready? Okay. <laughs> ma'am. Yes,
6: ma'am. yes. <laughs> My name is Li Yang. Thanks for panelists to discuss this wide range in different form of employment or job creation. But we got to focus on who create a good job. So whether the old, traditional, or new form is really just job itself, whether you are self-employed or family-based or home-based or corporation. The problem is now, I think you have mentioned that capital, but I think it's more important. It's not just human capital, your skill and talents and your training, but also your family relationship, your people can work for you. (coughs) and uh, people you can trust, Mm -hmm. and uh, then you can sort of expand your businesses. So the problem now, what we have is uh, those resources will be depleted. Whether your financial assets have been taken away by financial institution, or your assets, your, your reputation have been damaged. And there's no way that you can ask the government to clean this up. Actually, the so-called job increase is basically a propaganda to subsidize or bail out, for instance, financial institution or bail uh, out general can, can mortals.
1: You like sort of
6: Right, right so what I try to say is that currently, all those resources that we need for good job or good cooperation or employment is, is sort of non existence and people cannot complain. Mm. And uh, actually, okay. all our phone, I'm not
1: sure uh, if I'm drawing out a question.
6: I, can, can I take okay. a? I'm okay. not okay. okay. all, all the all the approach, all the essay you need, all communication, or phone, or email, computer will be blocked. Okay. So what Do we want, want to address, I, I've got it. Got okay. Great. To I, Great.
4: I, Great. I, so, Bob, I like very much the point that. You know, even if we can improve uh, wages, you know, either through worker ownership or, um, you know, enterprises like yours, um, low wage workers are still subject to a lot of predatory practices in the real estate industry, in the banking industry, and it's very expensive to be poor in America. Um, so, um, so I take from that point uh, the idea that, one way that you help lift people out of poverty and get them into secure employment is to reduce the amount of the predatory practices that people are subject to as consumers, as renters, as tenants, and so on, and I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so the. Kids, uh,
5: The Consumer uh, Cooperative Bank was started in the early 80s, late 70s, and I'm just wondering what you think about the Consumer Cooperative Bank. Has it been useful? And if, and how could it be more useful to the movement?
2: The national? Yes, right, National Cooperative Bank. Um, That's a long... (laughs) 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 They've been been helpful to us, specifically. I mean, they've financed several of the, of the uh, healthcare cooperatives that we've been associated with, have actually financed PHI. Um, I th- there's also, it's a little complicated because there's both the bank and the development corporation uh, that they created that's, that, that does more um, risk-taking than the bank itself. Um, I think they got, the, the cooperative bank got caught like all the other banks in the, in the 2008 problems, so they're still recovering from that. Uh, I think it, is st- it was still a case example where um, a, a fair amount of resources were invested in that initiative it, it still came out relatively too risk averse um, and uh, since they're a bank they d- definitely had to get their money back but um, but i think i, I would like to st- uh, it did not fill the gap of a true risk capital source for cooperative development they've been very helpful but it doesn't it didn't answer the need for an equity uh, source, as again the Community Development Finance Institute said.
1: Um, yes, ma'am, Becca.
2: Um,
4: I'm. I work with uh, independent businesses to help them uh, transition to employee ownership, and so I would love to talk with, to hear from a couple of you about some of the general steps and challenges you see as uh, an existing corporation considers transitioning to employee ownership and then in particular, challenges for transitioning to a worker cooperative versus, you know, seeing an ESOP as a default model if you're not already structured as a
3: cooperative. Um, Yeah, well, it's one of the major ways that we're trying to see more employee ownership, but is through ownership transitions. Right now we're seeing a, they're calling it the tsunami of baby boomer transitions, where there's a lot of um, people who are retiring who are business owners and an employee stock ownership plan might be a good, fit for a lot of those companies so we're we're hoping to see I think awareness um, is not scalability with the co-op model awareness is one of our major issues in in the ESOP world Um, but there are difficulties in in transition well any kind of ownership transition is difficult ESOPs are very technical and have a lot of um, they're governed by federal law and because of the incredible tax benefits there's also incredible rules that you have to follow and I think there's so many competent uh, service providers and practitioners out there that can help that and that's what we're here for too is to do initial feasibility to work with any company that's interested to talk them through whether it would be a good fit and um, it's just basically the process it's an individual company process them calling us or calling somebody that knows about knows about employee ownership in a meaningful way there's a lot of people who say they understand employee ownership that don't so that's a difficulty finding practitioners that that actually understand the topic and seeing if it's a good fit it's for brokers who are trying to sell they often don't want to talk about employee ownership you don't get a commission when you sell to the people who are in your building so that's that's a difficulty too you don't hear the right information so i think one of the major problems is just access to to reliable information about what employee ownership is and how it can be a tool, and whether it's a good fit for your company, because for a lot of companies, like ones that aren 't profitable it's not necessarily a very good fit so um, so that's where that's where we are i think it's yeah
0: let, let me add because i 've actually gone through and done any. One thing the said, you've got to, to say, you be making money. You've got to, <laughs> right? EBITDA is very important when doing an ESOP valuation because you're going to get a haircut because you're going to do an ESOP. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is advisory costs are very high. It's complicated. So it's not complicated in concept, but there's a lot of rules. So you're going to need tax people. You're going to need ESOP advisors. You're going to need your, so the, the, the ancillary cost of doing a deal, is high. The other thing is if you're going to do 100% ESOP, quality of management is very, very important. If you've got a younger management team, it's going to be more difficult to transact in ESOP than if you've got a seasoned team that absolutely understands the business if the equity changes and they can keep running. So those are the three things, strength of management, uh, advisory cost, and any, but I would say you have to concern yourself. With. Sorry. Yes. Um,
7: when I hear of a worker cooperative, I think of low wages. <coughs> so can you, um, can you give me an example? Okay, all right, it's so for the TV. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> when I hear of worker cooperatives, I think of low wages. So can you give us an example of like, what the typical yearly salary for the employee owners in your organization and yours as well?
2: So uh, in cooperative home care, the uh, average wages will be as of March of next year, the start of the minimum wage will be ten dollars an hour plus four dollars in benefits um, and it's very important to ask though wages is one thing but number of hours worked is also really important when it's take home so in the in our industry workers tend to it tend to be a part-time industry so 20 to 25 hours is the norm in our cooperative it's uh, 36 hours as is the, is the average employment so um, so that is still uh, that is still too low absolutely and that's why we work so hard on the public policy side because that's what really sets those wages and if you asked me that question two years ago the answer would have been eight dollars an hour and, um, and in our company's benefits but in the industry no, uh, mostly no benefits unless you're unionized so we led a New York State policy initiative to create essentially a minimum wage for any Medicaid funded home care workforce in the city, and that's what's raised the wages 25%. So that's an example again of if you're just going to s- try to do everything from just the enterprise, that's not enough, you've got to really leverage the what your knowledge and your relationships and your expertise to try to, try to create change broader within the sector. There are other, uh, and I think you're right that there's the, the reputation for a lot of worker co-ops are in low wage co- industries precisely because low wage Companies tend to not need a lot of capital to get started, relatively speaking. Um, but, there are, uh, but there are other examples of other companies that are, pr- that are worker, successful worker owned companies that do pay middle class wages. Uh, Equal Exchange is another fair trade coffee company that's in Massachusetts that employs about 125 people, you know, highly salaried. There's, so there's a range. But we, but we come at it from a development perspective from low income people. who have low-wage jobs. So our, our purpose is to figure out how not only to create career ladders, which is really important, but also how to raise the floor for these jobs. How do you, how do you improve bad jobs or poor quality jobs through better training, better wages, better benefits, better supervision, um, better access to public resources, and, um, and, and a culture of support. That's what we try to do. And Al, did you want to? Okay. okay. okay.
5: <laughs> I probably don't need this, but um, forgive me if I sit down. I've got a bad wheel here. Um, I find myself in an interesting position as a startup looking to start an ESOP because I've been a member of the Center for Economic and Social Justice for years. And capitalization is a major issue for a startup. The startup as an ESOP is virtually an impossibility. I almost did it in Kentucky with free money from the city and the state, but uh, that finally evaporated for political reasons. So here's the question, how can we make, and I think the question was asked earlier, how can we make capital available for companies that want to do the thing that's going to allow people to be owners? How How do we expand the middle class? The only way we're going to expand the middle class is by giving people property, because you don't get into the middle class easily on wages, especially today. So the question is how to do that, how to make capital available. One of the issues that, that Dr. Curland has advocated, and i want to make sure that everybody knows who Norm Curland is. He actually was a member of the team that drafted the ESOP legislation and was a partner of Lewis Kelso. Um, how could we make money available? And our argument is there should be credit insurance. So that the, so that loans like that. Can be, can be handled in an expeditious fashion that doesn't unfairly burden any financial institution that allows us a matter of public policy, resources to be available to encourage more employee-owned, more cooperatives. In fact, right now, one of the biggest arguments for the ESOP is that the cooperative doesn't have a built-in funding mechanism, where the ESOP does. And the ESOP, as has as, as been stated earlier, the ESOP has tremendous tax advantages. An employee could have $10 million in ESOP money in that in, the, in, in his own shop and he doesn't pay or she doesn't pay a dime until that money's taken out, just like a 401k. So we've
1: got our question.
5: Yeah, the question is where do we find? Right. How do we find more capital for for startup companies that would be ESOPs if they could?
3: I mean, it's it's a difficult issue. Loan guarantee programs would be wonderful. You know, I think it's hard. It's for us we see a lot that. For companies that have heard about employee ownership that capital can be a very difficult issue and there are some states that have, um, like Indiana has a program to help finance uh, employee ownership and the SBA has small loans for that, <laughs> that are very difficult to use, <laughs> um, <laughs> that are grunt worthy. <laughs> um, but I feel I feel like there there is a gap. There are some um, companies. Uh, Chris Mack and he's a leader in in the employee ownership field, and he uh, he is a partner or special advisor for a, a firm that's doing ESOP lending. And um, I attended SoCap. I don't know if you've heard of that conference recently, but there's a lot of money that's being thrown towards. You know, social entrepreneurs and social enterprises and all of that that's a I we spoke there because I think that's a great community for building um, at first getting some capital into into, into businesses that, that believe in employee ownership from the beginning but traditionally in our sector we've mostly seen it be traditional businesses conventional businesses that then want a transition option so it hasn't been as much but with this budding idea of social entrepreneurs wanting to be employee-owned, I think that's a great place for us to start uh, and uh, for uh, us to follow talk.
5: On, uh, if I may. One of the things mm-hmm. that we've been forced to do is to go to a C-Corp and go to a private equity offering and then use. Mm-hmm. Then our plan is to use the ESOP to buy out the minority of in- stockholders mm-hmm. so that we can convert to an ESOP at a later date. But to get into an ESOP flat-footed, virtually impossible. Mr. Crowell. Yeah, uh,
7: I think Kelsa was more than a guy dealing with specific firms and how you finance specific firms. He was talking about the system as a whole. And there, if you solve the problem of where the money comes from, and I agree with what Jerry said, you also need a substitute for collateral (laughs) if you're, if you're starting from scratch. And that is insurance because the reason for collateral is to, to cover the risk of default, but Kelso went much bigger because he was really talking about how you change the system to really democratize ownership as a basic, fundamental human right and lifting the barriers in the macro system. And the most important one is available under existing law and I think it could bring together different parts of the ownership movement. And that is Section 13 of the Federal Reserve Act. Section 13 of the Federal Reserve Act was there from the very beginning. And what it did was say that it it talked about if there isn't sufficient savings in any of the 12 regions for agriculture, industry, and commerce, the federal, each of the regional banks could discount what's called bills of exchange, okay? That's precisely what you do when you start a business. You're going into a bank, and a bill of exchange talks about how you're going to get a loan, but you're, how you're going to pay for it. So you have to, uh, you have to put, up, put up your, your, your plan. And, and so one day, the, the ownership movement is going to wake up to the existence of Section 13 and begin <laughs> demanding it. And I hope the labor movement recognizes, because it's, it's really in bad shape today, that it wakes up. And people begin to organize at the Federal Reserve, demanding that the new head, the new chairwoman of the, of the Federal Reserve begin to activate uh, Section 13 of the Federal Reserve as a source of new money. Money that doesn't depend on old money, accumulated wealth of the rich, but rather its credit, and this is the key to Kelso's idea, credit repayable with future savings. And to that extent, anybody with a sound business plan should be able to put together a package. Commercial banks are supposed to be in the business of financing sound businesses, and that is the key, and I think everybody in this room ought to take a look at Section 13 <laughs> of the Federal <laughs> Reserve Well, well <laughs> <side reading. laughs> All right. Um,
1: any last burning questions? We've got time for one more.
7: And it can be interest-free.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that easy. My goodness. Um, I feel like a terrible person for having to choose between you guys. You had your hand up the
4: Thank you. Uh, my question is regarding B corps. Uh, given, uh, in my understanding, of B corps is a relatively new structure. Um, currently, my understanding is also these B corps tend to be relatively smaller um, businesses. Is there anything in their structure that you f- that you think would prohibit them from being larger global Scalable organizations, maybe you know, to the likes of a GE, at some point in their time, or is there something in their structure that would prohibit that type of growth and scalability? It's interesting. Some of the support for benefit corporations came from um, progressive businesses that became targets for takeover, uh, like Ben and Jerry's, and um, essentially they felt as if they were. going to be vulnerable to shareholder derivative litigation if they didn't go with the high bidder, as opposed to the bidder who most closely approximated the values of the company. And so but one of the legal advantages of being a benefit corporation is that the company can act in interest outside of just the bottom line shareholder value. They can say, no, this takeover uh, you know, would-be acquirer is not consistent with. The environmental values of the company are is going to get rid of an important uh, social project that we're engaged in, or or what have you. But I, you know, I I, I would think that um, as benefit corporations begin to grow and spread across the country, more people find out about them. People want to spend their money with benefit corporations. People want to work at benefit corporations. People want to invest in benefit corporations, and it merges with different forms of worker-controlled enterprise. Um, you could get kind of rival versions of what, what big corporations should be doing. And um, so oh. I, I, I foresee that that will happen over time.
3: So um, one of the aspects of the benefit corporation is those a slightly different structure that there is a fiduciary duty to at least try to have a beneficial impact on society. That's not something you can impose on public s- shareholders after the fact but there are a number of benefit corporations and it's kind of it's a little complicated because there's certified B Corps which is like a fair trade type certification thing and then there's things like uh, in Maryland where there's an actual legal structure where there's you can you're, you still say an S or a C Corp but you're also a B Corp and there's this additional these additional fiduciary duties that come with it and there's this additional structure um, and it gives you a little bit more flexibility it's like he said to sell to wh- whom you want but if you're if you're start if you're starting as a private company and you want to become a public company and your shareholders know from the beginning that those types of restrictions that if they were going to have a sale or the way that they're running their business is different, then those shareholders know going into it. So they haven't. I don't know if they've experienced it yet. I think they're close to experiencing a public company, or they just have. It's very recent. I know that there's been one acquired. Some uh, I don't know the name of the subsidiary, but Campbell's acquired. A company, and the fact that they were a benefit corporation changed um, the level of their negotiations in the sale. And so that's that's a wholly owned subsidiary by Campbell that's now being run with benefit corporation values. So it is a scalable concept, and those those different shareholder values. It has to grow from the ground up, but it's certain it, you can't be imposed on a larger company from the beginning. But you know, there's potential for all of these to grow and scale and be larger. So I think it's a it's a great structure and. An, you know, we have uh, King Arthur Flour, Dansco, New Belgium Brewing, Full Sail Brew. I like breweries. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there's a lot of overlap between B Corp and ESOPs, and uh, I think that as you know, as they grow, we'll see we'll see some public companies that you'll be able to invest in that are triple bottom line companies. So, I think that's.
1: Thank you all. Such a fascinating conversation. I hope you guys, guys have time to hang out and answer other questions that you have. Yes, thank you. So we are we are at time, but I want to give our panelists a round of applause. I think they've been fabulous. <laughs> thank you all. I'm glad you all now have great beer recommendations. <laughs> and, uh, I hope you.